Hello, my name is CJ and welcome to episode 3 of The Crashdown. Today's episode is called Monsters and there is so much to talk about in this episode. I know I say that every time, but today there really is. I have more than half a dozen points here that I really want to get into. We have car accidents. We have bonding between Maria and Isabel. We have Max getting a new job. We have new powers demonstrated by Isabel. Uh, Michael is still obsessing over his key. Liz is wondering about the future. There's a career fair at the school, so Topolsky's holding one-on-one -on -one interviews. And I think we need to talk about this how the heck is this diner running, guys? This is going to be something I bring up in a couple of episodes. Who's running this place? I don't know. Let's talk about it, starting now. The episode opens with Maria driving her mom's Jetta down the highway when she sees Isabel and the Jeep broken down at the side of the road. This is the start of a long line of both serendipitous and disastrous car accidents that happen throughout this show. It seems like any time the plot needs a device to put two people together or leave them stuck in a certain place, they're in the car and something happens. So Maria, trying to be the bigger person, trying to accept these new weird aliens into her life, decides to stop and pick Isabel up. The tension between these two is palpable as they sit in this car. You can see that they're trying to make small talk, but it really isn't going well. And that's when Isabel notices Maria's keychain hanging from the keys in her ignition. It's a weird kind of alien trinket, and Maria instantly apologizes. And this is where we learn what her mother does for a living. She makes all these alien tchotchke things, these kind of trinkets, things that they would sell in the gift shop, weird figures and tacky sayings, and it's insane. And Maria apologizes, she says she's so sorry, but Isabel says she understands, all moms do stupid things, and that's going to come back in a major way later on in the episode. And so, feeling sentimental for a moment, having that bond of, oh yeah, Parents are so embarrassing, what are you going to do? Isabel decides to try and repay her by fixing the broken air conditioning in Maria's car. She waves her hand over the vents and it starts blasting out through the vents. Then she fixes, in quotes, Maria's stereo and has the music blasting. Instead of seeing this as a gift, though, Maria basically feels like she's under attack. There's a tornado in the car, and now she's being bombarded by this music. And because she's in such a panic, she swerves and rear-ends Sheriff Valenti's car. That's right. We're two minutes into the episode, and we're already on car crash number two. It's insanity. And that's basically the opening. That's going to be the Maria-Isabel dynamic of... Both of the girls think they were helping, and both of them think that the other person is overreacting, and it's going to be a kind of she-said, she-said situation. Getting back to things, Sheriff Valenti and Maria. This is one of the main conflicts in this episode, but I don't quite want to get into that conflict, because that, that Sheriff Valenti conflict is kind of the climax of the episode. What's going to happen with him? He's still on the case. He's still investigating them. 
What I do think we should start off with, though, is the career fair. This makes my day. Even though I can't get behind Topolsky as a guidance counselor in general, these scenes with all the kids in the school make me laugh so hard. We have our main cast, but we also have a few kind of local townies. And Topolsky is calling everyone into her office and conducting interviews about where they want to be in 10 years, where they think they're going to be in 10 years, and then she gives them a bunch of personality tests to show where their strengths lie and where they should focus their future career goals. But during this montage scene, we get these characters summed up so perfectly, and the disparities between who people think they are and who people actually are. So the first is kind of a, a towny girl. She was the girl from the bathroom who was mm-hmm-ing about the eraser room. And when Topolsky asks her what she wants to be, she wants to be Brad Pitt's love slave. And I've got to say, that reference holds up. You know what? If Brad Pitt today needed a love slave on the side and Angie was cool with it, I would totally be down for that role. Then you kind of have, like, this greasy rocker who wants to be the lead guitarist for Metallica, and Kyle, who wants to play left field for the Houston Astros. Isabel, who's going to be an international supermodel. You've got Alex, who thinks that's a really great opening question. Does she always start with a question like that? And Liz, who wants to be a molecular biologist, or her dream, dream, dream job would be head of molecular biology research at Harvard University. So when Topolsky goes around for the second round of questioning, where do you actually think you're going to be? The townie girl says, probably working at the cheese factory. Now this becomes a running joke that that's actually a large source of employment for the town is cheese factory. If you're not in the alien biz, you're working at the cheese factory. So realistically in 10 years, that's probably where she's going to be. The heavy metal like guitarist thinks, you know, maybe he'll be a video store clerk. No, no, he'll probably be working at the cheese factory. Kyle definitely believes he's going to be playing left field for the Houston Astros. Isabel usually gets what she wants. And Alex, well, that's a really good follow-up question. What did Mr. Polsky want to be when she was younger? And our steady Liz definitely believes that she's going to be a molecular biologist. That's what I love about Liz. She's strong. Kyle is kind of delusional. He doesn't really know how good he is or where he's going to stand. But Liz, she has goals and she actually thinks that she can implement a plan to get her to those goals. Topolsky doesn't quite like that. She thinks Liz has a bit of an OCD thing, which maybe she does, because in a couple of scenes, you see her at the crashdown with a giant whiteboard filled in with a, basically like a chore chart that's color-coded in like a, more than a dozen different colors of all the different employees and all the different tasks that she's totally micromanaged and she's built flexibility into the plan. That's how unrigid she is. It's way over the top and leads into my point about who's running this cafe diner. Where's the dad? Is Liz the manager? She seems to be holding this staff meeting. People are there, and it seems like it's their day off. Does she have authority like that? Oh, I'm the owner's daughter. Is this a nepotism thing? Or is she just really that smart, and she's holding this whole thing together? I don't know. Maria kind of just plays along, like she plays along with everything, in Topolsky's office. 
her response to where she's going to be in 10 years, well, she could be dead. So, you know, what's the point in thinking about it? <laughs> and that's Maria. The total difference between the two of them. One who's OCD micromanaging every second and then the other's a total free spirit. Why pin yourself down? You could be dead at any second. Now, before Topolsky gives the results of her tests about the future, she has one more little activity. And that activity consists of showing them pictures and asking each student who they think they would be in that picture. So it could be of a jungle gym and kids climbing all over it, or a group of people holding hands in a circle. So Kyle is obviously going to be the king of the jungle gym. Alex is going to be the kid holding the umbrella for someone else, because obviously he's caring and giving like that. And when it gets around to Max, he jokes that he would be the kid hiding behind the tree. And he even says, oh, I'm, I'm only half serious. But Topolsky stops and says, you know what, I've been the kid behind the tree too. And goes on to try and sympathize with him about when she was in college, she was really withdrawn, and she needed to step outside herself and experience the world around her. And the way that she did that, the way she stepped out from behind the tree, was by talking to someone she likes. So I love that as soon as he leaves her office, that's what he does. He goes and tries to find Liz and starts a conversation about nothing in particular. Liz, however, is still wrapped up in this Maria Isabel drama. She's put in the middle of it when Maria has something that's bothering her. She is not going to let up about it. So Liz promised that she'd talk to Max and this kind of splashes cold water on Max and scares him out of saying anything to Liz that he might regret later. Now at the diner, once again showing the incompetence of the management staff, Maria is working a shift alone and they have been absolutely overwhelmed by all the people in town, which they often seem to be. But I really feel like if you run a restaurant, you know when your peak hours are. You know when you get rushes. You know when you're going to get slammed. And sure, sometimes you didn't expect that busload of tourists. But when you live in a tourist destination town, you should be expecting busloads of people to come walking through your store. So Maria is having a super shitty shift. She's totally overwhelmed. She seems to be working the floor alone in this huge diner. Later on, you do meet some of the other staff, like you saw them in the staff meeting. Did they all just leave? Was it like, screw you guys? Look, I came to this meeting. I'm not working the rest of my shift. This was my two hours for the day. I don't know. But while she's there, Max comes in to once again try and reach out to Liz. But she isn't there. And Max watches her shortchange a customer. She can't leave, though, to give the money back because she's all alone there, so she sends Max. And this is where we get to introduce the UFO Center. This is definitely going to be a reoccurring location. We go across the street from the crash down to this alien museum, quote-unquote, research center, I suppose. It sort of looks like an underground bunker. It's, you know, tacky tourist stuff with newspaper clippings and blurry photos and model alien reenactments and scenarios. And it seems like Max has never been in there before because he's overwhelmed by all of this stuff that's... It, it could be about him. In all honesty, it could be about him. He has no idea. But when he goes in there, he hears Milton. We introduce Milton, another new character. 
who's working there, who runs the place, he's the owner, operator, tour guide, basically everything that this place is. He's leading a tour around, talking about the crash and what could have happened, were there any survivors, and he opens the floor up to questions, and people are just throwing out random things, like have there been sightings, and he says yes, ever since that crash there have been many, many sightings in the area. And Max throws out, what about 1959? He stays anonymous, Milton can't quite figure out who in the crowd asked that, and we get these sort of spy versus spy scenes with them, where when Milton takes the tour group to go and watch a short film, Max approaches him, and the two of them are trying to talk covertly. Neither one of them wants to show their hand about, oh, you're curious, you've got the bug, I think you've got information, oh, you're, you're really into this, you've got something here. But the whole time they're having this very serious conversation, their faces are being projected onto the screen because they're standing between the projector and the wall. And so this very secret conversation has been broadcast and everyone's been watching them. And that's the level of seriousness and danger that's in this show right now. And that's fine. It's kind of bubblegum sci-fi. And for a teen show on the WB in 1999, I was all for it. And you know what? Maybe it's just nostalgia kicking in, but I'm buying it right now, too. I am laughing just as hard at these scenes because you know what it should be. You know what it could be. But I like that they're playing it light like that. I think it makes for entertaining television. That's what I want. Sure, serious, gritty dramas have their place, but sometimes you just want to sit back and laugh a little and know that everything's going to be okay in the end. Because of this tension between these two characters, though, Milton and Max, he tells them to come back the next day and reveal what they have. And again, neither one wants to say, neither one wants to go first, and Max kind of convinces him to show his unmitigated proof that aliens do exist and that they have been visiting in 1959. And his proof is a shadow in a photograph of when he was a child visiting an ice cream parlor, and it looks like there could be an alien outline on the wall, and it's a shadow. And that's his proof, and it's been sending him on this quest ever since, and this research UFO center is actually his own personal private mission, and he's gathered all of the top UFO alien encounter knowledge in, that he could get his hands on in this one place, but it's employees only. And so when Max shows interest, Milton sees something in him, something that was in himself as a young boy, and hires him. So now we have an alien working at the UFO Center. And again, that's the tone of the show. And if you're on board for that tone, you're going to love this series. And I'm sure you do. If you're listening to this, you already love it. So I'm preaching to the choir here. But I, I love these UFO Center stories. It's a light-hearted way for him to research his past while kind of covering himself. Because who would really think that an alien would work at a UFO center? I don't know. I wouldn't think that. Now that we've covered Max's job, I think it's time to address the elephant in the room. I know you can't stop thinking about it. I know I wish I could stop seeing it. I know I wish I could fast forward to season two or three. It's Maria's hair. What is with it? Who chose it? Obviously she did, because 
Apparently, there are rumors that in season one, she decided to do her own hair and makeup, and then when she realized what these professionals could do, she was like, oh, yeah, uh, you guys do this for me. I look so much better now. But this, in this first season, it's a pixie cut, but it's got blunt bangs that come straight across her forehead, and by across, I mean cuts right through the middle, like not high, not low, not covering the eyebrows, like dead middle, straight across on the forehead, and it comes down in pointy sideburns as if she was a Romulan or a Vulcan or some sort of alien on Star Trek and because it's so short it's like a pixie cut at the back besides the terrible haircut she's also wearing an outfit that reminds me of something that Hermione Granger would wear it's that sort of private school uniform only it's like a tunic like a square sack dress that's kind of blackish gray with a complete with like a white collared shirt and tie she looks like a 12 year old boy playing Hermione dress up it's it's a style I, I can't even say crazy it's a choice it's definitely a choice to get noticed and I think that's what Maria's all about is being one of a kind she wants to be the only one with this hairstyle she wants to be the first one with this hairstyle and I think she is in most of television, you won't really often see another look like that. And the only other people are in the year like 3,000, 4,000 in Star Trek. So this is what I mean when I said that Maria is so ahead of her time. And that she really does fit into this sci-fi world. She was basically built for it. Or has been grooming herself for it. Literally. Once it starts growing out, we'll talk about some of the transition hairstyles. And then when all of a sudden she jumps and they talk about a little hocus pocus that goes on. I like when they try and bridge these things over. But it's a show where anything can happen. When they have crazy alien powers, anything goes. And that's what I'll talk about next. Alien powers. Because there's a real lack of continuity about what these people can and cannot do. Because we, we do get a new power, and I'll save that for a minute, but Isabel on the side of the road, at the very first scene when the car is broken down, why can't she fix it? If she could fix Maria's air conditioning by waving her hand, if she could fix the radio, if she could make a flat tire in the previous episode, why can't she just wave her arm over the hood and be like, heal yourself, car, be good? Right? Like, what, does she have to understand how that mechanics works? And if it, if she does, I'm sure you could just look at it and figure it out. If there's a giant crack in something, you'll be like, oh, don't have a crack here. Right? If something's worn away, be like, oh, be not rusted anymore. It does not take a genius to figure this out. So that's what I mean about really convenient slash inconvenient breakdowns and, and what their powers can do. <sighs> I don't know, unless they all have their specialties. Because Isabel seems to be the only one with a dreamwalking specialty. That's right. Because of this conflict with Sheriff Valenti, he sees an ally in Maria. And now he has an excuse to go and visit her at the diner. At first, it's just to collect insurance information and then follow up. And then start dropping vague, subtle hints about how great it is to have large institutions on your side. Like your insurance. They took care of everything. 
know that we, the Sheriff's Department, are also a large institution that's here to protect you. He can see how nervous Maria is, and not just about the car accident. Since Isabel is hovering over her shoulder all the time, she's really on edge, and Valenti, because he knows that something is up with Max, ties Isabel to that and jumps on this right away, and even goes so far as to set up an interview alone with her in his office. And this sets Isabel off. The whole time everyone's saying, oh, trust her, trust her, she's fine. But who knows? And Isabel can't leave this up to chance. This is her fate. This is her future. Everything she has rests on this pathetic girl. So she needs to know the truth. So we get a brilliant shot of Katherine Heigl in these kind of silk pajamas, like grandma pajamas, only magenta with pattern on it. What were we doing in the late 90s? I mean, where was our style? She's got all sorts of like calf length dresses and sweater cardigans. She's dressing like a middle-aged soccer mom and she's supposed to be 16 years old. I do not get what's going on here. I wish I could change that. I wish we could update this show for so many things. But Isabel is going to use her powers of dreamwalking. She apparently used to do it to their parents when Max and her were younger, but it left her mom with nightmares and unable to sleep for weeks. So Max doesn't really want her to, but they need the truth. They just do. So she gets into bed at like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning, the middle of the night, and she starts flipping through a yearbook until she sees a picture of Maria and then kind of rests her finger on her face and drifts off into the dream. And when she's there, She's in her silk pajamas. Maybe she chose that outfit. Maybe she normally wears, like, something really skimpy, but she figures, oh, if I'm going to be in someone's dream, I better cover up. So she shows up, and Maria is dreaming about working at the diner. And all the aliens are there, Max and Isabel and Michael, and they've left the place a mess. Liz has this great kind of New York, Jersey waitress line of, some people are just pigs. And when Maria turns to look, these aliens have turned into actual aliens. They've got these weird antennas, and they're kind of green-tinted. And this is where the title Monsters comes from. She sees them for what she thinks they really are, and freaks out. And the whole situation is made that much worse, because Liz doesn't see anything wrong. Maybe it's because she's so infatuated with Max, like I've said, that she doesn't see how weird this would be for someone else? Or maybe it's because he healed her so she knows, oh, he's good. He helped me. He could have let me die. He could have saved himself and let me die. But he exposed himself to save me. So maybe she just has this life debt and now owes him and is kind of in love with him and obsessed with him. But Maria doesn't have that. Sure, she's happy that Liz is safe, but she has no idea what these other aliens are going to do. So in her dream, because Liz doesn't see anything wrong with them, uh, Sheriff Valenti then appears in this sort of dream logic where something's there and then it's not, or it's far away but you can reach it. He's all of a sudden sitting a little further back in the diner, and Maria tries to call out. But Isabel's been watching this whole thing and confronts her. This is how you see us. This is what you think we truly are and points to them at the table. But now Michael is dressed in a tuxedo, and he's got his hair slicked back, and he's looking all suave like James Bond. 
Isabel's like, oh, like that's how you see him? But Maria says it makes her less afraid when he looks like that. It's less intimidating for her. But is it? We get a line from Michael when the three of them are trying to figure out what to do about Maria. At first he jokes about killing her, but then he just kind of says she's weird. She's weird. It's just a throwaway line. But then we see her seeing him in a tux. I don't know. Anyway, Maria's still yelling. She's reaching out, trying to get the sheriff's attention. But again, like I said, it's a dream. So logic isn't quite working. He can't hear her. He can't make out what she's saying. And then Maria wakes up. And whether that's Isabel pulling out or whether it was just the natural end of her dream or she was so scared she woke up, but Maria falls out of bed. So that's Isabel's power. She can get into people's subconscious while they're sleeping. Which is kind of scary. I can understand why that would really affect someone. It's like Inception before Inception was a thing. Now, I'd just like to stop for a minute and talk about this dream sequence. This is something that comes up a lot on Roswell. There's dreams and visions, flashbacks, premonitions, all sorts of things. And I would love to hear from you guys because I I feel like I'm going to run long on this episode. There's so much to get into and I know this comes back time and time again. So I'm asking you right now what you think about these visions, these dreams. Are they overdone? Can you kind of take a step back and remember what it would have been like in 1999? Do you think it was played out then? Or were they ahead of their time? Do you think that's still a valid storytelling device? How else are we supposed to get into these characters' heads? Unless we're having monologues, voiceovers, diary entries, dreams so we can see their subconscious. i genuinely love to hear what you guys think. Hey, I haven't said it yet this episode. If you have any thoughts, opinions, questions, if there's anything you want me to touch on on an episode I've already done or something coming up in the future or just a general question about the characters, email me at thecrashdownpodcast at gmail.com. How easy is that to remember? You can also tweet at me. It's thecrashdownpod. That's it. The Crash Down Pod. Super simple, guys. I'm trying to make these as easy as possible because I want to hear from you. Are you guys sick of my voice yet? I would love to have a letter. I can put on an accent if you want me to. I can, I don't know, get a computer to read it so it can be like there's another person in the room or that it's me and a computer. I don't know. That could be fun. Me and a robot hosting this show talking about Roswell. That kind of fits. Anyways, I want to hear from you guys. Maybe I can share some of my own opinions in other episodes when there isn't quite so much to cover, but I just thought that could be kind of an interesting touchstone, and maybe we'll see how many times they use this. Maybe a few times it's a valid choice, but if you do it too often, the viewer can't bond with what's happening because they know it's not real. There aren't really consequences, although in this case, maybe there are. After that traumatic night, she's working the next day, and Isabel to put a little salt on the wounds, goes back and makes that same line, some people are just pigs, to Maria in the restaurant. Now, Liz has brought up to Max before this tension between Maria and Isabel. And Max knows it's there. He knows that Isabel tends to make people nervous. The thing is, Isabel cultivates that. She has that discussion where she wants to use that 
persona of fear to her advantage. If they want to show aliens as being vicious and all-powerful, she's all for that. What Maria needs, though, is someone to hold her hand. She's the hippie kumbaya. She does not deal with aggressive very well. She, at least at this point in the show, panics. Panics. And just doesn't feel safe. She doesn't feel safe around her friends. She doesn't feel safe at school or at work. And that's really not fair. And when you don't even have your best friend anymore, one best friend knows, Liz knows and is totally on board, and then she's not allowed to tell Alex. So she's keeping secrets and then she's being rejected. No wonder she's got all of this stuff rolling around in her subconscious. And Valenti is right there to prey on it. Liz is constantly acting like a buffer. She's trying to get information from Max, but she's also trying to reassure him. There's a priceless scene where they're at school and they're in science class again. And I think they're supposed to be doing experiments, but they need a moment to talk about all this crazy stuff that's going down. So they fake drop something on the floor and they duck under their kind of lab table to talk about it. But this scene goes on for a really long time. They're down there and they're flirting with each other. And Liz is reassuring him that I trust Maria. She's a fortress. She won't say anything at all. But all I can imagine is standing in the classroom next to them, literally like two feet away. You can still see them. You can still hear them. Only they've been under the desk for like five minutes now. If anything, that's drawing way more attention to the situation than if they had just done the experiment and just whispered. Or hey, guess what? Write on a sheet of paper. Yo, Maria, cool? Circle yes or no. Like, it's that simple. Just a nod, a smile, anything. You just go and duck under this desk. Oh my goodness, I don't know why. It was such a small thing, but it just really got me. When you put yourself in that situation and you just see how ridiculous, it's like soap operas where people talk behind each other's back, like literally, like they're still in the frame and they're whispering only can't hear it. No, no, just... Have them walk outside, have them have that discussion in the hallway. Why did it have to be in the classroom? It literally, there was no reason for it to be set there. That wasn't even really part of the plot. It could have been set anywhere, but no, let's just shoot this under the table. And then those poor actors are just scrunched down. How many hours did it take to shoot and light that scene that they were just under the table so they could flirt and talk? <sighs> Some things, you guys, I don't understand it at all. But Liz is making her case the whole time that Maria is going to be fine. And then it cuts to her grilling Maria. And she's basically feeding her answers. When Valenti invites her into his office, she's going to be ready. And some of the answers that she prepares are nothing, just headlights. And I don't know, I wasn't conscious. Because Liz has actually written literally written up some scripts of what she thinks Sheriff Valenti might say to her. And those are some of the answers. What did you see when you were in the parking lot that night? Nothing, just headlights. Who was it who was leaning over you? I don't know. I was unconscious. It makes total sense. Except those aren't the questions that Sheriff Valenti's going to be asking. <laughs> so he, I think it's time. The conflict of this episode is when she goes in there. Because she really doesn't know what she's going to do. 
She trusts Liz, but she does not trust these aliens. And when Isabel is going around actively antagonizing her, what is she supposed to do? She's a scared teenage girl, and this alien creature is threatening her. She really wants to have Liz's back. She really wants to be trustworthy, but she has to go with her heart. And again, this is the strength of Maria. She might be flighty, but the things that she cares about, she will be with until the end. So the day finally arrives, and she is on her way to pick up her car so that she can go to the sheriff's office. And she's waiting out in the desert because all of these establishments, if they're not on the main street, are in the middle of nowhere. And I feel like they just repurpose the same, like, rest stop for everything whether it's a gas station or the taco stand or a car repair, I feel like it's all really the same place. But she's waiting, and of course, Isabel has to pick up her car, convenient, and her mom is dropping her off. And this is where the bonding starts to happen. Uh, While they're waiting for their keys, they start talking about their moms and how Isabel's mom doesn't even know the truth about her. She kept that. She's an adoptive child. Oh, I didn't even mention this. When Topolsky is talking to Max and trying to bond with him, she seems to have more sessions with him than the average person. She is oddly obsessed with Max in this episode. I know she's calling all the students in to talk about their careers, but she seems to call him in like three or four different times, and this happens in the next few episodes too. I understand maybe he's isolated, maybe you think he needs help, but really, that's kind of inappropriate, and shouldn't he be in class? How much school is he missing? I don't think Max is the kind of guy that would sit around voluntarily in his free time. So, how long is he really in there? And if she's talking with every student, wouldn't she have hundreds of kids to see? Wouldn't this process take weeks? But yet she has time to sit down and talk with Max every time he has a problem? And one of the things that she talks about and she brings up with him is being an adoptive child. How can he plan for his future if he doesn't know where he came from? And she starts questioning him. Oh, what did you want to be at five? What did you want to be before you were adopted? But he can't remember. He can't remember anything that happened before then. But I wouldn't think that's so rare. Maybe something really traumatic happened. If a child is found alone in the middle of the desert with no parents... Something bad probably happened. So to antagonize this kid about his missing parents is really kind of sick. And it it just kind of confirms everything that Isabel has been scared of. Is that what people think? Is that what people feel? Like, is there that distinction that she is the adopted child? She will not be loved if she reveals to her mother what she really is. And so she lives her whole life in this constant state of fear. I think that's really shown in her test results. I never even gave the test results. I told you guys I'm all over the place today. There's so much happening in this episode. So the final results of her test were that the female townie who knows all about the eraser room could potentially be a writer. And she liked that. She thought, how hard could that be? And the heavy metal guitarist is going to get his dream job of working out as a video store clerk. Yeah, not even the cheese factory. Woo! Alex, very unsurprisingly, gets psychologist. And that's very interesting. 
how did Miss Topolsky get her start in psychology? It just fits him so perfectly. He's, again, another comedy bright spot. Everyone else is kind of being very negative or just very reactive. You ask a question, I'll give you a silly answer. And he's engaged. He's throwing it back at her. He's asking the questions. He's interested in her. I feel like Alex has a bit of a crush. He really seems to be bonding with this intelligent woman. And I like that. I think Alex needs to aim high. But you know I have issues with Topolsky, so maybe he can do better than that. Kyle gets a little bit of a shock when it's recommended to him that he would be good at law enforcement. And with a sheriff for a dad, he is not really impressed with that. No, he'll stick with his Houston Astros. Thank you very much. Isabel, too, was shocked at hers because she claimed that she wanted to be an international jet-setting model. But when her test results came back, it showed that she really valued stability and family. And Topolsky tries to tell her it's okay to want to be normal, but it's because she's never had that. When you can't even trust your own parent, when you don't have any place that you feel safe and at home, that would be something that you crave deep down. And it is very easy to brush that off and seem very cold and aloof, but those are all defense mechanisms that she puts up to protect herself. Not just emotionally, it is emotional with her mother, but literally physically she is terrified if anyone should find out the truth about them and so in her heart to heart with maria that comes up a little bit and it's in the back of her mind when she goes into sheriff valenti's office and it, we get to see his interrogation techniques and once again jim valenti gets to shine his techniques for questioning this girl are so good he really runs the gambit of being professional, seeming all-powerful, being on her side, we get a bit more of his backstory with his father. He opens up, we mentioned in the past that his dad was called basically like Sergeant Martian, and he was convinced that aliens were real. They try and laugh it off, Valenti tries to pass that off as a laugh, but his father believes so much that it got him kicked off the force, he was a sheriff, it got him kicked off, and he lost his family over it because they didn't believe him. And now here Sheriff Valenti is, and he says he knows it sounds crazy, but if there's anything that Maria wants to tell him, he'll protect her. And right now Maria's really scared. Protection sounds like a good thing. When these aliens are getting into her dream, when they're around her all day, all night, where is she supposed to go? Valenti is convinced that someone is controlling her through fear, though. He asks her about what happened the night of that crashdown festival. And she says, nothing, just headlights. And he asks, were you there to meet anyone? She says, I don't know, I wasn't conscious. And here's Maria's character. Even in this moment when she's terrified, when she's thinking about giving them up, she does recite the lines that Liz fed her. Maybe it was panic, but I like to think at her core, Liz is her best friend. They've been best friends for years, and that means something to Maria. That is also family. Maria and Liz are like sisters. Sheriff Valenti is using every tactic in his book. By opening up about his own life, he talks about how he and Maria have something in common. When his father left or was kicked out because of all this alien stuff, he had to grow up without a father figure. And he knows that Maria did too. That's why she's so close with her mom. It's just the two of them. And he tells her that he doesn't want to see 
that happen to any other family in Roswell. He doesn't want to see any more families torn apart by this. So he asks her again, what is so special about Isabel? And Maria tells him. She tells him exactly why Isabel is so special. Because she comes from a nice family. And now, he wouldn't want any more nice families torn apart, now would he? That's right. Maria has picked her side. She knows what family truly is. And even though Isabel might be an alien, she still has parents. And those parents are human. And she cares about those human parents. She has a life here. She grew up here. Those roots matter to her. And now it matters to Maria, too. As long as she knows that they aren't really terrible, evil, horrible creatures that are coming for her, she has nothing against them personally. It's not like she has a vendetta out to get them. So she sticks to her guns and doesn't tell the sheriff a thing. And she drives out of the sheriff's station triumphant. And who should she see at the side of the road? That's right. Isabel, again, the jeep's broken down. So this is number three in one episode. Minimum three accidents that we saw on screen, and I wouldn't put it past them to have a couple more that were off screen. <laughs> so Maria picks her up again, and they drive back to where the rest of the gang has been waiting. While well, all of this has gone down, Michael, Max, and Liz have been hanging around the school lobby area not knowing what's going to go down. Liz says she did her best and she trusts Maria, but she honestly didn't know. When Maria said that she had to do what was right, Liz had no idea how to take that. But when the two of them walk in together, Maria and Isabel side by side, they know that everything's going to be a-okay. And the episode ends with a voiceover, not a diary entry. I thought that was very interesting. Today's topic was all about the future because career week and Liz's obsession with controlling everything and toying with her fate that she always used to think her future was a straight path and she didn't count on intersections. And that really progresses throughout the show. She didn't plan for these things. She doesn't know how to take it. She had everything set for the future. She knew what was going to happen. And now how is she going to fit in all these other things into her day? How is she going to fit it all together? I don't know. I guess we just have to watch the rest of the series and see. Are you guys excited? I actually am. And I'm trying not to rush through recording these for you guys because I really, really, really do hope that you send me mail. I could record like 15 of these things in a week, back-to-back, -back, marathon this stuff. But I want to hear what you guys think about these episodes. Upcoming, future seasons about characters, plots, wardrobe, hair, set design, lighting, music. I haven't even touched on the music in this show yet, you guys. Oh, we're going to have a whole huge segment about that. And I wonder if it's different on the DVDs and Netflix. Hmm. Maybe you should tweet me some of your favorite songs and we'll see if they line up. If they've put new music in, if it's old music, if it's nostalgic. If you're just discovering some of these nostalgic songs for the first time so they seem new to you, I don't care what it is. I want to hear about it. So tweet at me, the Crashdown Pod, email me, the Crashdown Podcast at gmail.com. Super simple. I'm making it easy. I want to hear from you guys. I'm trying to think, is there anything else I forgot? I think we touched on it all. 
The only other thing that was going on was Michael is still obsessed with this key. No one else is going to take it seriously. He hasn't had another flash. But in the future, I think we're still going to get more and more of him just growing obsessed with this key. Ooh, do you guys remember where it leads? Ooh, I do. I can't wait till we get there. Whose key is it? Does it open anything? I don't know. These questions and many more will be answered in future episodes. So tune in again next week, Monday. Episode 4 will be coming at you. I can't wait. Until then, guys, have a good one.